0: All right. Good morning, everybody. So good to see you guys today. And uh, we are going to be, if you looked at the bulletin, don't panic, it says we're going to be in Mark 5, verses 1 and 2. We're actually going to be in verses 1 through 20 this morning. So uh, the tech guys asked me how I came up with 50 pages of notes on two verses. Not that I couldn't, but I didn't. So we are going to look at 20 verses this morning. If you don't have a Bible, you might want a Bible, and we can get one into your hands. You can certainly use a Bible on your phone. Uh, any Bible is a good Bible. Oh, kids, you guys are dismissed. Elementary kids, so preschool through like fifth grade, and then youth group, middle school, high school. Uh, you guys are being saved this morning by Pastor Chris, who is taking you out to uh, to minister to you. Um, So that Jesus Revolution movie, as Donjay mentioned, uh, super exciting. This is sort of like our family history, the history of Calvary chapels. Um, It's not a documentary, so I'm not expecting it to be sort of this perfect. But it is based on a book that Pastor Greg Laurie wrote. He pastors, of course, the Harvest Christian Fellowship. And he was part of this initial move of the spirit um, that launched the Jesus Revolution and sort of created Calvary Chapel as what it is. Uh, today, and in very many ways, Pastor Chuck was just sort of caught up in, he didn't set out to start a movement, he just was caught up in something that the Spirit was doing. Um, And it's really, uh, again, there's no coincidences within the kingdom. We've been excited about and praying for the release of this movie for a while, and just excited about what the Lord might do through it. Certainly we could use another Jesus revolution right about now in our country, amen? Amen. Um, and even now, in anticipation, you know, or just in advance of this release, I don't know if you've seen it in the news, uh, you know, it started out, I was reading about it in kind of the pastor's blogs, and then it was in Christianity Today, and now it's made it to some of the national news outlets, uh, but there is a, a, a move of the Spirit that's happening uh, it started just on a small campus in uh, Asby, uh, Asbury, pardon me, uh, in Kentucky, I think that is. Who even knows where that is. but um, started there, and, and now it's spread to a, a number of different uh, college campuses. Just this amazing work of the spirit. You know, what started with just a, a morning chapel has developed into a, a multi-week, continuous, just a time of worship. It wasn't planned. Um, You know, there's no big names that are associated with it, and it's just really exciting to see the Lord really start to pour out His Spirit on those that are hungry for it. Um, So keep your eyes on that. You can Google Asbury Revival and uh, try to find some credible results uh, to read about that. But let's just really be praying for God to continue that work of His Spirit that He's doing there and then these other places. And first and foremost, let's pray that we are one of those places. Amen. Amen. We want that same work even here, even now, uh, this morning. So um, let's pray for that uh, as we as we continue and we go to His Word. Uh, today, So, Father, we thank you so much, Lord. We do thank you so much for all of the great things that we see you doing. Lord, how we want to be part of those things. We're so thankful for the things that you're already doing here in our midst, Lord, and yet we always want more. We want more of you, Lord, more of your spirit, and more of that uh, work of his in our lives. And we pray for that even now, Lord, as we take this time now and we, we go to your word, Lord, we ask uh, that you would be our teacher, Lord, that you would uh, just give us ears to hear what your spirit would say uh, to your church, Lord, and, and for all of us collectively, Lord, and, and for each one of us, Lord, as individual believers, Lord, individually. And so we thank you, Lord, pray your blessing on this time. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So. Uh, it is. It's great to be back with you guys this morning. Though it was great, apparently, to be at the Super Bowl last week, where it is reported that I was. And any of you who, who know me, you know what a huge sports fan I am, right? And what a game it was, right? You've got those those two teams, right, that were playing on that big field, and then but that one team got more baskets, right, than the other team. But then, like, exciting went into those extra innings. But that one goal, you know, nothing like being there at the game. Amen? At any rate, (laughs) I was super blessed because I was able to tune into the service last week. And what an encouraging and truly an absolutely freeing word I think that that Don Jay brought. Uh, It was just as encouraging, apparently, as the crowd that Don Jay also brought. And I think this is a bring your own crowd kind of a church, so I need a bigger family, uh, apparently. So, we are going to be back this morning, um, right back in the book of Mark. We're going to start in right where we left off. We're going to pick up uh, in chapter 5, as I said. And we are jumping right back in, I have to say, uh, into a very heavy text. And it is a text, really, I think it's one of the texts, I think in many ways, that is one of the heaviest stories in all of the scriptures. So, if you're visiting today, God bless you. God, God brought you here For a reason this morning. But this morning we're going to look at the story of the demoniac of the Gadarenes, right? This demon possessed man that Jesus encounters now I know you Bible students you're thinking back and you're maybe even ruffling some pages right you're thinking well we already saw Jesus encounter this demon possessed man all the way back in chapter one right right there in the synagogue and then again we saw that there were many of them mentioned him casting these demons out of many from the multitudes by the time we got there to chapter three so what's the big deal about this one well, we're going to see that this one, this demon possessed man, is a big deal, right? This is a whole other level kind of a deal that Jesus is about to deal with. And as we look at it, of course, as we do each and every week, we're going to see this text has a lot to teach us about our own lives. You know, first of all, of course, about our adversary, but more importantly than that, just about this victory that we can have through Jesus. Now there's a lot to cover here, I wanna jump right into it. You hopefully remember a couple weeks back at the end of chapter four, Remember our buddies, the disciples, were stuck in the midst of a storm. And it was this storm that had struck as they tried to cross over, it said, to the other side of the Galilee. And it was a wonderful account of the ways that Jesus really developed their faith and he revealed himself to them in the midst of this storm. And remember, this was a storm that they thought would be their end, but Jesus promised that he would see them through, and of course, he did. And you already know the end of the story, right, because I kind of spoiled it for you last time we were here, because as we pick up today in verse 1 of chapter 5, what we actually see is the conclusion to the storm story of chapter 4. What we see is now when Jesus shows up on the other side, that's the title of our text Today, and uh, looking here in verse 1, then of Mark chapter 5, it says, Then they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadarenes. Now, Jesus had promised they would reach the other side safely, and his word, of course, had come to pass, just as the word of God will always, always, I don't know if I could add enough always is in there, It always will come to pass without fail in our lives, no matter where we end up. And for these disciples, they had just ended up in a very dark and a dangerous place here on the other side of the sea, right? This country of the Gadarenes, right? So this is now the whole east side of the Galilee. And it's often called the Gadarenes because this is the side of the Galilee which had been settled by the tribe of Gadarenes, Gad, the tribe of Gad. Remember that from when we went through Joshua? Remember that Gad was one of the three and a half tribes, right? We had Reuben, we had Gad, and we had half of the tribe of Manasseh. They chose not to cross over into the promised land. Is any of this ringing a bell? Remember, they chose not to cross over into the promised land proper. And if you remember the story, they liked the land over on that other side because it said that the region was a great place for their livestock. So their concern was on being able to have these big flocks, have these big herds, instead of being concerned about dwelling right there with their brothers and sisters in the actual inheritance that God had intended to give them in what was his highest for them. So their first concern they put on making a living, not on making a life, and we saw in their history that it started to create problems for them from that point on. Remember in the book of Joshua, they were so far from the, uh, the center of worship in Jerusalem that remember right at the end of the book, they just about caused a civil war. Remember, because they set up their own altar just to remind their children that they were still part of Israel on the other side there. And we see that their separation geographically just continued to create problems nationally and socially and militarily all throughout the time of the judges and then straight on into the time of the kings. And then by the time we get here to Jesus time, well now we just sort of seen the full blown fruit of this bad decision in full bloom as this place that had really seemed to have it all from a practical perspective now proved to really be disastrous from kind of a spiritual point of view because what we learn in the very last verse of our text today, Mark makes reference to this whole area on this east side. He calls it the Decapolis, which means 10 cities. And it's a reference to this region where there were 10 cities on the eastern side of the, Ge- the Sea of Galilee. Now, Decapolis kind of sounds like a Greek word because, well, you guessed it, these were Greek cities that eventually then became Roman cities, and these Greek Roman cities were filled with all of the things you would expect to find in pagan Greek Roman cities. They were filled with these idolatrous temples to pagan deities. They were filled with houses of prostitution. They were filled with all of the abominable things and the licentious living that just permeated that Greco Roman culture at that time. And again, this is just look at the arrow just across. The the water there from Capernaum where Jesus had set up his headquarters. But that influence, that pagan influence, had just brought this entire eastern side of the Sea of Galilee really under the control of the demonic realm. And it brought demonic darkness to this whole region. And so understand, this is the region, spiritually speaking, that Jesus had just brought his boys to. Right. They were now deep into enemy territory, spiritually speaking. Right. So th- these boys thought that the storm getting here had been scary. Right. They were about to come face to face with an evil that they had never, ever witnessed. Because look at now what Mark tells us in verse 2. Because it says that when he, so that's Jesus, had come out of the boat... It says, immediately, right, there's that favorite word of Mark's again. Immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. So again, the the way that Mark writes this, barely out of the boat, right, just on the shore here on the other side, they're confronted by this demon-possessed man, right, this man with an unclean spirit, who it says comes to them out of the tombs. Right, so there was, there's a series of caves that are cut into the cliffs that kind of raise up right from the sea in this area. Now some of your translations might read this, this man had an impure or uh, an evil spirit. Some of your translations may render this verse that he was possessed by an evil spirit. And that's actually kind of the best sense of the original Greek. We're gonna see later that in our text, that he was possessed likely by even more than just one, right? He was possessed by multiple demons. So here's a man possessed by multiple demons. Now this brings us, of course, to the subject and a, hopefully a brief little discussion about demon possession. Right. Now, there are about a dozen cases of demon possession that we find to some, you know, with some detail in the New Testament, when you look at the gospel accounts and then on into the book of Acts. And I, I mean cases where demon possession is really the right term to be used, because in each of them you see there's an evil spirit, right? A fallen angel. Right, a a demon, has come into that person and has taken control of certain aspects of that person's life. Taken the control away from them over their life to at least some degree. And now that demon is using that human life, sort of that, that body, if you will, for the purposes of expressing itself. Now understand, this is a New Testament reality it's a reality that we see even today in our own culture you don't have to walk very far down the street necessarily even to see it now but it's a it's a reality that most people and many christians are really uncomfortable with even the thought of that thought that there is some kind of an unseen realm where there are these forces of good and these forces of evil and there's a struggle between them that's very real And there's a battle that's very present all the time. Remember, Paul tells us that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And we've said it before, but I think it bears remembering. Remember, people are not the problem right? It's the forces in the unseen realm, right? It's these spiritual hosts of wickedness. It's the the rulers of the darkness of these age. It's those things that are working behind the people and which in some cases have actually taken control over the people. That's where the real fight lies, right? The real fight is against Satan, whom the Apostle John very clearly simply calls the evil one. Because all evil originated with him and it comes ultimately from him. And I I bring this up as we start to look at this man because I truly believe that it's only as we really start to understand the nature and the activity of Satan and of his demons, only then I think can we really begin to understand why the world is the way that the world is. The world is the way the world is primarily because of the influence of these evil spirits. Now, in some ways they have a pretty easy job because in most cases they have the cooperation of human beings, right? All they do is kind of exploit our own very natural tendencies towards sin and sinfulness, but make no mistake, they are always behind the scenes and they're always manipulating, and in some cases, they are completely controlling individuals. So as we look around, one of the major reasons for the constant state of moral and of social and of personal upheaval is because the world is under the influence of this kind of evil spirit. John tells us again that the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one, right? And they're manipulating everything from world affairs right down to the personal affairs of everyday ordinary people just like us. And their goal is always to harm us, always to control us. And in some cases, in extreme cases like this, to take control away from us through possession of us. Now, I will say this, a couple cautionary words. I am personally inclined to believe that a demon can only come into a life and take over a life through some kind of an invitation, right? Some kind of a door that has been opened up to them. And that could be a door that was opened up through dabbling in the occult or You know, Ouija boards, which were so popular, tarot cards, fortune telling, right? Demonic seances or literature or, of course, demonic worship and different kinds of pagan worship practices. But there's something there that can open up a door, and the demons are very quick to recognize it as a a, a curiosity or an invitation, really, into a person's life, and they will take quick advantage of that opening. And I think that just understanding this, it's so frightening today in light of the fact that so much of our movies and our television, our video games, especially certain genres of music, they glorify the demonic realm. You know, these different things out there, even music with lyrics that clearly call on audience members to invite Satan into their lives, right? They've co-opted our language. They're saying, invite Satan into your life. And this is a very real thing that's happening today. Then you think about the fact that Satan worship itself happens all the time. It's allowed, of course, as a religion in our nation. There's a church of Satan that used to have its headquarters First in San Francisco, then in Santa Cruz. Now I think it's back in New York somewhere. Great, get it as far away from us. We got enough problems out here, right? But you think about all the books that are being written that introduce people to Satan and very subtly introduce our kids to witchcraft and the use of magic and of spells, right? And so many people just attempting to draw others into this. Now, I will also say this, having said all that, it's equally important to understand also that no Christian can be demon-possessed. Demon possessed, where a demon takes up residence inside and takes control of our lives. Now, we can be, we absolutely can be demon oppressed, but we cannot be demon possessed, right? We can be demon oppressed where Satan comes at us from the outside. And we know he can be a mighty force in trying to oppose what God's doing in our lives and through our lives. But he can never come inside, Satan can never come inside of our lives. 1 John 4, 4, right? A very clear verse related to this. John writes, he speaks of these demonic forces and he says, you are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you that's the Holy Spirit, is greater than he who is in the world, right? That's the unholy spirit of Satan. And I want you to remember that verse, right? 1 John 4, 4, and every once in a while, when you are being severely attacked by the devil, I want you to take out that four by four and just whack him with it, right? 1 John 4, 4, right? Whack him with a four by four He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Paul tells us in Ephesians 4, he says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And the Holy Spirit sealed you when he came to live inside of you. And let me just tell you, the Lord does not do timeshares with the devil. Amen? He's not sharing this space with anybody else, especially the the devil. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit now is the one who's taken up residence and lives here inside of us, and he's the one who dominates us now from the inside. Though there is absolutely this warfare where Satan does his level best to attack us from the outside, and it can be, as we know, it can be very, very significant. So significant, in fact, and Jesus knew that it was going to be. Remember, even when he taught the disciples how to pray. Remember Matthew 6 or Luke 11. They say, Lord, teach us to pray. And then he gives us what we call the the Lord's Prayer, which is really sort of the disciples' prayer. It's this model prayer. It's kind of a daily prayer. And you know that part of that, at the end, there's that part about what? Do not lead us into temptation, but what? Yeah, it's right there on the screen, right? Deliver us from the evil one. So for Jesus, there was this clear consciousness that we are in a battle every day as his followers. And we can never lose sight of that because, trust me, the evil one never loses sight of it. Right? Peter says we need to be sober and vigilant because Our adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And devour is exactly the right word. Because when we look in the Bible at those, every instance, those 12 instances, you know, where we find demon possession, what we find is that the individuals who are under the control of that demon, they are always afflicted and tormented and abused, right? The impact that 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 demon has on people is never a positive one. We see physical impairments like blindness and deafness and lameness and seizures. We see self-harm, mutilation, violence, insanity, demonic clairvoyance in that one instance in the book of Acts. And in the case of this poor man, who Jesus is about to encounter here, we're going to see it's a combination of a bunch of these different things. Because here out of the tombs comes this man who Mark says here, look at verse 3, says he had his dwelling among the tombs and no one could bind him, not even with chains, because he had so often been bound with shackles and chains. And the chains had been pulled apart by him and the shackles broken in pieces. Neither could anyone tame him. And always night and day He was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. Now, when you just try to to kind of picture the picture of the state of this man, I have to say, I, I do not know that I know of a more pathetic picture of a human being anywhere in the Bible. You know, we can probably imagine that being demon-possessed would be an absolutely horrifying experience, right? An almost indescribably terrible experience. And our text here teaches us that it's exactly that. Because in these verses, verses 2 through 5, 3 through 5, pardon me, I think what we see is this is a living, breathing example of what the devil would do to any human life If he was just given the opportunity to really do it. Right, here's this man, notice he's dwelling out there among the tombs. He's living among the dead. Right, completely lost his family, he's lost his friends, he's lost his home. He's living out there in the the wilderness, in these caves amongst the dead, living like an animal. In Luke's account of this, in Luke 8, it, we're told that he wore no clothes. So he's out there naked in this condition, living this life of total isolation. He just simply does not fit into society anymore because of this destructive, demonic work. And not only in his life, but the work that the demons were trying to do through his life. Right? He had become a danger to everyone around him. So much so that they had repeatedly and unsuccessfully tried, what, to chain him up. You know, in Matthew's account, he tells us that he was exceedingly fierce so that no one could pass that way. He'd become so very violent, so very fierce, such a danger to society, right, a danger to himself. These are the types of people that we don't know what to do with, so we simply put them in prison to keep them away from everyone else, to try to protect everyone else. So this man, not only could he not control himself, but no one could control him. No amount of people could control him. He's untamable, and he also has this tremendous superhuman strength by virtue of the fact that there are these demons that are inside of him. It talks about shackles being broken in pieces. And the effect of all of this Look there in verse 5 is that he is tormented. Constantly tormented day and night. So much so that he's crying out. Right? Imagine going anywhere near that area. Night and day you could hear the sounds of him howling and wailing in torment over his condition. Just absolutely tortured continuously. And understand it is not the demons that you hear wailing. It's that man, that man who is still somewhere trapped deep down there inside of all of this, this man who's been taken captive. And I think that there's a reminder here for us that there is still a human being inside there somewhere. Trapped in all of this, there is still a human being that is being used and abused night and day by this demonic host that's in there. And so he just screeches, kind of as as an expression of the horror that has somehow become his life. So much so, look at there, he tortures himself physically simply to try to numb the pain spiritually. Notice there where it says he cuts himself with stones. And understand that in the Greek, in the original language there, that word used for cutting We're not talking about small cuts with a nice sharp knife. The word means to gouge. It means to cut down. It means to cut deep. So, what this man is doing is he is gashing himself with these sharp stones, right? Opening up these great wounds on his body. This is self mutilation and self destruction. And understand this as you dabble with whatever the sin is in your life that this is what satan will do to any life if left unchecked because he is a destroyer right that's one of the names that he's given in the scripture right abaddon or apollyon revelation chapter 19 it says they had as king over them talking about these demons the angel of the abyss whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon and in Greek, Apollyon. In Hebrew, Abaddon means place of destruction and the Greek title Apollyon literally means destroyer. So Satan is the destroyer and this is the human life at the hands of that destroyer. But make no mistake, most often as he comes in and starts to invade the life of a person, he takes his time before he lets you know what he's really all about. Satan doesn't show up and say, knock, 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 hi, I'm the devil, and this is what I want to do to your life, if, you know, if, if I could have my way. But he comes, what, Paul says, as an angel of light. And his ministers come as an angel of light for a time. But this is what he's aiming at. And this is what he wants to do. And this is where he wants to take you because he hates you. Right? He hates you because he hates people. Even the people That it seems like he gives power to, and he gives pleasure to, or he gives influence to, or he gives money to. He hates them, but as long as he can get them to do his purposes by giving them these things, then he's just going to take his time to really work toward their destruction, and he's perfectly happy to do it. Understand, Satan cannot be saved. He cannot change his own future. He can't change his own eternity. So all he can do is to try to destroy ours along with his. Every human, the Bible says, we are all created in the image of God right? On the last day of creation, right? Genesis 1 God said, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. And then we see that God, it says, formed Adam from the dust. And how did he bring Adam to life? He breathed the breath of his spirit into him. So humanity, we are unique amongst God's creations because we have this, both this material body And we have this eternal spirit and that is what through which we can, we sort of commune, we have intimacy with our creator. And Satan hates us because every time he looks at us, he's reminded of how much he hates God himself. So he wants to destroy everything that's good. He wants to destroy everything of God by corrupting it and by perverting it. And so what we have... So evolution is true, but it works in the reverse order. We have not an evolving culture. We have a devolving culture, right? And we see the kinds of movies and music and TV and video games and literature and education. We see all these things, and what do we see? We see an increasing focus that they all glorify lawlessness and they glorify rebellion against God, against God's given authority, Right? We see violence and the inciting to do wrong, and we see the glorification of nudity. We see the glorification of death. We see the beautification and the glorification of demons and demonic power. And all of these things, these are demonic themes. Right? These are demonic scenes. These are not scenes or themes that God puts in front of us. These aren't the things that God puts in, our, in front of our eyes and into our ears so they get in our hearts. The destroyer has put these things there, and it's working. It's working. Look at our Christian nation, right? We have become, in just you know, 200 years, what Israel was during the absolute worst time of their rebellion. Let me read to you out of Isaiah chapter 5 where, where Isaiah pronounced these woes or these judgments on wicked Judah for their behavior. And you tell me if this doesn't sound like us today. He says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Did you know there was more outrage over the Jesus commercials that aired during the Super Bowl than there was over that satanically inspired, lewd, halftime show. Right, now Paul promised that this is exactly, that there would come a time in the end times where we're gonna see the intensity of this kind of spiritual battle really just increasing. In 2 Timothy 3, you guys know it. He says, know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, Blasphemers, disobedient to parents. We should have kept all the youth in, right? Disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, he says, and from such people turn away. And is this not exactly what we're seeing today? I bet you wish Don Jay were still up here, right? Little Romans chapter 8, you know, there's no condemnation, right? That was good last week. I'm back this week, sorry. Here's what I want us to see, though, is that there's a spirit behind all of this. Right? And it is a destructive spirit, and it's a dangerous spirit, because it's a spirit that eventually people become completely and utterly powerless against. Look at this poor man. Look at how powerless he is to change himself or free himself or improve himself or heal himself. Notice how powerless everyone else is to help him. And that's where Satan brings people. He brings us to that place of utter desperation and hopelessness. He takes people right over, if you will, to the other side until what? Until Jesus shows up on the other side. And look what happens when that happens. Look at verse 6. It says, when this man, when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him. Think about this. In the midst of this wailing and his gouging and his torment and his misery, this demon-possessed man, he saw Jesus and he ran to him for shelter. It's almost like for a split second, the man who was still somewhere down there deep inside, it's almost like he had control once again and he runs to Jesus and he falls down and he starts to worship him. Now, this is super interesting because this man had never seen Jesus. Right? This man didn't know Jesus. Right? He, Jesus had never visited this place and yet somehow this man knew to run to him for a rescue. And I think that as we read on, we're going to get a clue why that was, because our story is about to take a very interesting turn here in the next verse. Here's this man running to Jesus, right? Falling down, worshiping Jesus. And then suddenly it says in verse seven, and he cried out with a loud voice and said, what have I to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. For he said to him, come out of the man unclean spirit. Now what in the world is happening here? Well, the man who was demon possessed, he may not have known who Jesus was. But the demons who possessed him, they absolutely knew who Jesus was. And that's who start to speak here. Trust me, there is not one single demon that's an atheist, right? There's not one single demon that could claim that they're agnostic. You will not find even one of them, right? James tells us that he says, you believe there is one God, you do well. He says, even the demons believe and they tremble. They all believe and they fear his power and his authority over them. So these demons, notice what they call, they have a perfect theology, they have a perfect understanding, they knew that their residency and their reign of terror and torment had just come to an end. Now here's what's interesting about verse 8, look at it. Verse 8 would seem to indicate that Jesus had probably previously given them this command to come out of the man. Now the only time he probably could have said this is right as he was climbing out of the boat. Right? I think it's part of the immediately of verse 5, right? When as the man first comes out of the tombs at them Right as they're pulling up onto the shore, and I tell you, I absolutely love this picture, and here's why. Because I believe it really says something to us here that's really cool and helps us to connect chapter 4 with chapter 5, right? It connects that storm that they just survived with this encounter here on the shore at Gadara. You remember, a couple weeks back, remember when we looked at the storm, we said that there's certainly a possibility that, that that storm of chapter four was in fact stirred up by Satan. And we'd mentioned the fact that the book of Job indicates that Satan, to at least some degree, has some limited power, as God allows, over the elements. And that he may have stirred up that storm, ultimately, to try to destroy Jesus to keep him from accomplishing his redemptive mission of going to the cross of Calvary. And I still would submit to you that that is true. And yet, I also believe that Satan's motivation may have been much more immediate. And that what he was trying to do immediately was simply trying to prevent Jesus from having this encounter with this demon-possessed man because Satan knew that Jesus knew, right? Jesus knew right when he told his boys to climb into the boat because they needed to go to the other side, Jesus knew that on the other side was this pathetic person. Jesus knew that on the other side was this human soul that was so tormented by multiple demons that he'd been completely abandoned by the rest of humanity, right? That he was there wailing all night in the tombs and gouging himself to numb the agony. Jesus knew that. And of course Jesus knew, like Luke tells us, that the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And let me tell you, this guy was as lost as lost could possibly get. But here Jesus goes on this mission specifically to find this man no matter what. And i got to say, I love the lyrics of that song we sang this morning, Reckless Love. And I love it where it talks about the lengths to which Jesus will go to go after us. And I'm not even going to be able to read it, but the part where we sang when it says, you know, there's no shadow you won't light up, mountain you won't climb up, coming after me. It says, there's no wall you won't kick down, or lie you won't tear down, coming after me. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. And I think it just so illustrates this point that here's Jesus just absolutely undaunted. And there is nothing that's going to stop him from getting there to this man. Right. This is our undaunted loving Savior. And this is why he crossed the sea in the first place. This is why he ever said, let's go over to the other side. Because for Jesus, I believe it was all about this one man. And yet for Satan, I think the stakes were so much higher. Because look now, this even gets more interesting. We've got these demons inside the man. They're already begging Jesus not to torment them. Then it says in verse 9, it says, Then he asked them, What is your name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. Now that is just a terrifying verse any way you read it, right? This man didn't just have one demon that possessed him. It says there was a whole legion of demons living inside of him. Now, we know in these days that Israel was part of the Roman Empire, right? Dominated, governed completely by that, the military powerhouse of Rome, right? We know that Mark wrote primarily for a Roman audience. And they would have recognized that a Roman legion was a military detachment of 6,000 soldiers, now, we don't know specifically whether there were 6,000 demons exactly inside this man. I think we have a clue later on that there were probably at least 2,000. But the point is, whether it's 6,000 or 2,000, there was a lot. Right? Let me ask you this. How many demons are too many demons to be inside of you? right? One. Amen. right? One would have been too many. And notice that the demon here, when he gets asked what his name is, he doesn't say, my name is Legion, for we are a couple. He doesn't say, my name is Legion, because we are a few. That would have been terrible enough. He says, my name is Legion, for we are many. So whatever the number is, the point is, this man is nothing less than a walking, talking, demonic stronghold. He is a fortress of demonic power. Right? He's the poster boy, probably, of satanic power. You talk about Satan having put so many of his eggs into one basket. And you think about the absolute terror that he has been wielding, not just in the life of this poor, tormented man, but through this man. Right? In the life of this tormented community, likely in the, the entire region. This untamable, demon-possessed man who has the strength of ten or more men who is now kneeling there on the beach in front of Jesus, and you've got these demons that are begging and pleading with Jesus to go easy on them. I'm telling you, things are not looking good right now for Satan's team. It says in verse 10 that also he begged him earnestly So this is the demon begging Jesus. He begged him earnestly that he would not send them out of the country. Luke tells us that they begged him that he would not command them to go out into the abyss. So the abyss was that place of like temporary confinement for evil spirits. But instead it says in verse 11, now a large herd of swine was feeding there near the mountains. So all the demons begged him saying, send us to the swine that we may enter them. Now this is interesting because it tells us that it seems to us that demons don't like to be disembodied, right? They need some sort of a a body for their self-expression. So this is kind of this desperate request from these desperate demons. But I think we also need to ask the question, why are there herds of swine at all here in the territory of the Jewish tribe of Gad. Right, when the Mosaic law specifically prohibits the eating of pork because the the swine are an unclean animal, now many have wondered, and the answer is a simple one, and it's just one word, and the answer is money. Money. Right, the letter of the Mosaic law forbids only the eating of pork, but doesn't actually forbid the raising of it so that you can make a profit off of it by selling it to others. Although I have to say even the touching of a pig was forbidden by law, but you know, why be bothered with those kind of details, right? But the point is compromise never quits. So here we have the tribe of Gad who had stayed on this side initially out of compromise for the money right, putting their livelihoods ahead of God's highest, not trusting what he would provide for them on the other side of the Jordan. Now they're completely intermixed and they're overrun by their Gentile pagan neighbors. Now you fast forward here just a few years and it's not long before they're raising these pigs to sell off to the highest bidder, right? Sin never stops, This is always how it leads and where it develops. So we have the demons and they see the swine. They ask to be allowed to go into them. Verse 13 says, at once Jesus gave them permission. And then the unclean spirits went out and entered the swine. There were about 2,000 swine. And the herd ran violently down the steep place into the sea and drowned in the sea. So Jesus allows these pleading demons their desperate request. Notice the demons couldn't even enter into a pig right, without the Lord's permission. But he now completely has delivered this demoniac man of all of these demons. And the effect on the pigs, of course, is that they race off a cliff to their death. Right, driven to destruction, surely in their madness. Now, of course, people ask the question: Why did Jesus do what he did? Right? Why did he let the demons stay free? Why would he kill two thousand pigs? Which is an ironic question for people who eat bacon to be asking. But they ask it, right? Well, there's a number of reasons why he did what he did and only did what he did and why he didn't do more than he did. The simplest answer is that by allowing these demons to bring this dramatic, deadly destruction to these pigs, this was a crystal clear demonstration that the demons were real and that this deliverance was genuine. Right? It was a clear illustration for everybody who was watching of the incredible demonic power, right that could move 2,000 pigs to their own death, the power that Jesus had just removed from this man. And Jesus wanted everyone to know what the real intention of these demons was. Right? They wanted to destroy the man just as they destroyed the pigs. And these pigs were driven mad and sent right off a cliff. Which, by the way, you can make note of because historians believe that this is the very first mention in any ancient text of deviled ham. It really is. It's the first time we see it. I know, that was awful. But you didn't expect to get through the whole morning without that, did you? Really? Imagine the impact that this scene would have had on the people who were watching. Now, why didn't Jesus just send these demons straight into the abyss? Well, because it's not time for that yet. That time is coming, but it's not yet. And so in this story, we have kind of, it's almost just a preview of coming attractions, but it's a reminder that the devil and his demons are still very much alive and active. But more important than that, that Jesus has come on the scene and now their activity is limited. But very soon through his cross, he is going to deal the death blow to these evil forces. Paul writes so profoundly to the Corinthians. He says that having disarmed the powers and authorities, so that's a reference to the evil spirits, that Jesus made a public display of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And so again, this wonderful kind of a preview of the absolute authority that Jesus will ultimately exercise over these spiritual forces when he finally comes to establish God's kingdom, and yet a reminder for us that until then, Satan and his demons are alive and they are active and they were they're seeking whom they can steal, kill, and destroy. And yet there was another reason. I think we see this whole pig thing. Mark mentions it next. It says in verse fourteen through sixteen, it says that those who fed the swine, so these are the pig herders. um, Those who fed the swine fled. And they told it in the city and in the country. And they went out to see what it was that had happened. And then they came to Jesus and saw the one who'd been demon-possessed and had the legion sitting and clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who saw it told them how it happened to him who had been demon-possessed and about the swine. So, this entire event... Right, because you've had these 2,000 pigs who charged off the cliff to their death, it just drew this capacity crowd right, from the city, it says, from the country that was surrounding the city, and it brought them all out to the cliffs to see what had happened with their own eyes. Now, they probably came... To get a look at the 2,000 swine that were piled up at the bottom of the cliff in the water. But what does Mark specifically say that they saw? Look back at verse 15. It said that they saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had the legion sitting and clothed and in his right mind. So hey, forget about the pigs for a minute. Isn't that the guy who had all the demons living inside of him? Isn't that the guy who lived in the tombs and broke every chain we tried to put on him? How did that happen? Right? Who could have freed him? You mean to tell me it was that one Jewish rabbi over there? Oh, that guy named Jesus? Yeah, we've heard about him. And now he's here? So, so I think at the very least, Jesus allows this herd of swine to be destroyed in order to get the attention of the Gadites in a way that he knew would get their attention, right? Hit them right in the pocketbooks, right? Shine a spotlight on their sin, and then confront them with the greatness of his power, his messianic power. This was a way to expose them to the gospel message that Messiah had come. Because what else could have possibly accomplished this miracle? So they should have been at this point tripping over themselves to fall down at his feet. And yet, what does it say instead? Look again at verse 15. It says, they came to Jesus. They saw the one who'd been demon-possessed. They saw him sitting and clothed and in his right mind. Read the rest of it with me. And they were afraid. Think about it. Evidently, the fact that this man was torturing himself to death, that was less frightening to these people than the fact that he was now sitting there clothed and in his right mind. And look what we read next in verse 17. It's almost unbelievable. It says, They began to plead with him, that's Jesus, to depart from their region. So this is this tragic response of the people. It simply doesn't make any sense, right? It defies logic. Now, what would the logical response have been? Well, the logical response would have been joy, right? Overwhelming sense of pure elation and some sort of exclamation like, wow, we've been trying to help this guy for so long. I mean, they should have been filled with a holy sense of awe over what had just happened. You know, I mean, who has the power to do this kind of thing and and then say to Jesus, you know, we have a bunch more people that are suffering just like he was and maybe you could change their lives too and maybe you could change our lives. I mean, that would be the logical response. But instead, what do they say? They'd say, we'd like you to leave. Now, why does a person do that? Because there's a why behind this decision. Nobody says that to Jesus without a reason. Right. Why in the world would someone say that to Jesus in light of this kind of demonstration of his power and a demonstration of his love? The reason that you say that to Jesus is because they knew that Jesus was bad for the pig business. Right? They were afraid that if Jesus hung around there any longer, what other kind of losses would they start to incur, right? Whatever else is he gonna try to clean up if he hangs around all of these things that are making money? Here's the truth. The only business Jesus is bad for is the devil's business, right? The thing that they do, though, the problem is, as tragic as it is, this is something that we see happen all the time, isn't it? where Jesus starts to come into a person life, and it could be in a room just like this, where they're hearing the gospel and the invitation is given to give their lives to the Lord and repent of their sin and to give their life to God and invite him into their life and then really allow him to change their life. And they listen to the gospel and they don't do it, but they don't do it not because they don't believe in the truth of it, but they don't do it because they do believe in the truth of it. Because they know that if they do that, it's going to be bad for business. That it's going to cut into maybe the ways that they make money. Or it's going to cut into other aspects of their life. And they look and they think and they say, wow, if I invite Jesus to be the Lord of my life, there's going to be a financial loss. There's going to be a social loss. I know that my life is going to change and people aren't going to want to hang around with me anymore. These, these people are these things that are very important to me in order to have this lifestyle that I like. And so they choose pigs over Jesus. And ultimately, they lose their soul over pigs. Right? They lose their soul in doing this because the first words in the next verse are the most sobering words, I think, in this entire passage. Don't miss this. Because the most sobering thing to me, even beyond even beyond their request for Jesus to leave, right, is the sobering response here from Jesus. Look what it says just at the beginning of verse 18. It says that when he got into the boat. So the most sobering thing in all of this is that Jesus honors their request. He gathered up his disciples, he got into the boat, and he sailed away. And there is no biblical record that he ever returned to this specific region of Gadara ever again. Jesus will not stay where he is not wanted. And I think that it is so very, very sobering to realize that he will honor any decision a person makes to invite him into their heart, but he will equally honor the decision that calls upon him to leave and go out of their presence. And that's a decision that has eternal consequences. Notice finally, Mark gives us the response from the delivered man. Look at verse 18. It says that when he, Jesus, got into the boat that he who'd been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. You know, please can I go with you, right? His heart is so filled with gratitude. Can you imagine what's just happened in just the last hour of his life? Right, Everything has changed. He begs, take me with you. However, it says in verse 19, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friend's. And tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. Jesus says, look, I don't need you with me. He says, they need you with them. He says, you go to your family, you go to your friends. He says, I know that you love me for what you've done to me. But I want you now to go tell people. I want you to show people about those same things. Tell them about the power of God. Tell them about the love of God. Tell them about the way that God has changed your life and how he can change their lives too. And it says in the next, our last verse, that this man then spent the rest of his life doing exactly that. It says in verse 20 that he departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him and all marveled. So this man went not only to his own family and then to his own friends or even to his own town, but it says he went all up and down the 10 towns all through the Decapolis, right? These 10 pagan cities that made up that whole eastern side of the Galilee, this darkness-soaked, pagan-steeped, Gentile-populated region, certainly one of the most challenging mission fields to which Jesus has ever sent anyone I mean, besides the Silicon Valley, of course, right? But look at, this man took everything he had, right? He took this very simple gospel message just of what Jesus had done in his life. This was this powerful testimony of this man and what a great testimony to tell. Because even if you don't know all of the gospel, this is a gospel that we should all be able to preach. Right? Because his story, just like your story, just like my story, his story shows the incredible value that Jesus places on just one single life and on every single life. Because this one life is the only reason why Jesus came to this other side of the Sea of Galilee. And this man's story... Just like your story and just like my story, it shows that with Jesus, that no one is beyond hope. Because if this man could be changed, then anyone could be changed. You know, it is a a powerful thing for our friends and family to see our testimony of God's power and his love in our lives and that change that he's brought in our lives. Because understand, they all knew who you once were, right? They all lived through who you once were in some cases, and now they suddenly see us, and they see us sitting clothed and in our right minds. And I know that the change might not have been maybe this dramatic for some of you who are here, but for many of us it actually was. But to whatever degree there was change, there was change and it was drastic enough for our families to notice And for our friends to notice. And now they simply deserve to know what produced that change. Right? That's the testimony of how God saved us and how He changed us. And that's all that we're responsible for. Right? Remember back in Acts chapter 1, Jesus said, You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit, and what? You shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. We're not called to be defense lawyers. We're not called to be prosecuting attorneys. We're not called to be judges or juries. We are simply called to be witnesses. And what does a witness do? They don't argue the case. They don't try to persuade the judge. All a witness simply does is just report what they've seen and what they experienced. And so often we can get so intimidated thinking that we have to know how to defend the veracity of the Bible or we need to prove the fallacy of evolution or we need to justify all of the misdeeds that everyone sees in church history. But we're not called to any of that. We're called to simply be witnesses, to share what the Lord Jesus has done in us And for us. And our testimony like this man's is a powerful thing. And God simply told us to declare it. And and we're going to see in just a few chapters. Just how effective this man's testimony was. All throughout that region. But I want to leave us with this as we close. And I know we're horribly over time. But the, the point of this passage of course. Is that it demonstrates for us. And it just, it declares to us the absolute authority Jesus has over the demonic realm, right? That he possesses this power that is greatest, greater than even the greatest stronghold of demonic power. And I know that there's some of you in this room this morning that say, okay, well, that's great. But I can also tell you that there are a few of us in this room for which that fact is a very, very important. And there could even be someone sitting here right now and you're not yet a Christian and maybe there was somewhere along the way where you opened up that door and you made an invitation to the devil and his power and and he's come. Maybe he hasn't come in. Maybe he has come in. But he's come to a place in your life where his true colors are are now starting to be shown and you are really wondering, is there a safe place I can run to that's outside of Satan's reach? And there is a safe place, but there's only one. Right, in this whole big wide world, there is only one place that is out of his reach and that place is in the arms of Jesus. And to be indwelt by his Holy Spirit, that's the only safe place from the devil in this world. And so there is hope for you this morning. And the hope is found in trusting Jesus as your savior. And, and maybe you sit here today. And you haven't opened up any particular door to the devil. But for whatever reason he is after you. And he is tempting you, and he is probing you, and he is waiting for you just to give him some kind of an opening. And you know that that realm is real, and no one needs to convince you of that fact. And you wonder, even as he's just working on your life from the outside, right? Not even from the inside, but he is working on your life from the outside. And you look and you wonder, is there a safe place that I can run to? And yes, there is. And it's Jesus himself. And the point is that if you remove Jesus from this world, then we are absolutely powerless in the face of the devil and of his power and of his wicked, evil intentions to destroy our lives. I am so thankful for Jesus in this world. And if you don't know him, he is the only safe place. And you need to make him your Lord and your Savior, even now this morning. Now for most of us here who know the Lord and we love the Lord, just simply think of how wonderful it is to have a Savior who is nothing less than the absolute authority over the demonic realm. I don't know what spiritual warfare is like in your life as a Christian, but I know what it's like in mine, and it is very, very intense, right? It almost never stops. It's not a question of will there be warfare today, it's just how much is there gonna be and what form is it gonna take. And there are those times when you just get to the point where you say, Lord, I don't think I can take much more of this. Lord, I don't think I have even one more inch in terms of margin here. And it's times like that when it's so wonderful as a Christian to be able to call out and to call on the name of Jesus, not just as a name from some book, Or not just as the name of a historical figure, but as the name of my Savior and my Lord. And to be able to cry out to him in that kind of situation, and then to know the strength of his love for us, and to know that he will step in, and to know that he has greater power and that I belong to him. And we just praise the Lord today for his victory over that kind of evil, and that his victory has become my victory. I tell you, Paul was thankful over Jesus' victory over the devil, right? You can put that verse up there, Val. Peter was thankful, right, over his Jesus' victory, right? The apostle John, we've already seen, was very thankful over the victory of Jesus over the devil, right? That he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And so with them and with so many others, we say praise the Lord that there is this holy refuge in this increasingly unholy, demonically influenced world, right? It means so much to us. And you think about as this world gets darker and darker and they're giving greater and greater place to the demonic and they're opening up the doors to the devil that they don't even realize that they're opening. But this message that we carry, is that there is this place of deliverance and there is this place of safety and it's found in Jesus. And I'm telling you that message is going to become so precious to those who are going to be crying out for it at this point. And just like this delivered demoniac, we're simply called to be faithful, to recognize those people and then deliver this news to them that that place is found in Jesus Christ and it's found only in jesus christ amen amen thank you for your patience today father we thank you so much for your word lord and we thank you for just the incredible reminder that it gives to us lord of the incredible power that you have lord and that you make available to us father we're so thankful to be in your son jesus lord we're so thankful to have his name to cry out to, Lord. I do pray quickly if there's anyone here that does not yet know you, Lord, who has not asked Jesus to come into their lives, Lord, I pray that even now as we worship, Lord, that they would ask that of you, Lord, that they would ask for their sins to be forgiven, Lord, that they would come forward and have prayer if they need it, Lord, or simply do business with you in the, in the privacy of their, their hearts there. But Father, we thank you and we praise you, Lord, and we worship you now, and we do it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Let's stand up and let's worship the Lord.